Um, as I said, my name is Chris. I'm the student ministry pastor here. Uh, I'd like to welcome you here this morning. If you're new or visiting, we're in the first third of a year-long series that is taking us through the Bible, one chapter a day. And this week we're looking at the end of the book of 2 Kings and the fall of uh, Israel, but more particularly Judah. And if you're, a member, if you're a regular here this morning and you're coming, you might even feel a little bit like Rip Van Winkle or like you've just missed a, an episode from your favorite TV show and you might feel a little lost because last week we were in 1 Kings 8 looking at, at Solomon building a temple for God so that God could come and dwell among his people. And now we're all the way at the end of 2 Kings, and Babylon is coming to take Judah into exile. We've jumped um, 350 years in one week in your reading and in what you're teaching. And so if we're covering U.S. history, it's a bit like going start, starting uh, with New Amsterdam when they were told they could form their first city government all the way till today. So from like 1652 to t- today. All of American history. So we're going to jump that distance in in, in one week. So how did we get here? How do we get to a place where God is telling Solomon, build a temple, probably the most beautiful, magnificent building in history at time, so that I can come and dwell with you, Solomon, and come and dwell with my people to a place where God is now allowing a foreign power in Babylon to come and destroy that temple and take Israel into captivity? If we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, God renews his covenant with his people. And he tells them, if you obey my commands, if you buy in, if you keep your half of the covenant, I will bless you. I will bless the land. I will bless your family. I'll bless your house. I'll bless your kitchen. I'll even bless your dogs. I'll bless everything. He says in Deuteronomy 28, 5 to 7, blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be be defeated against you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. I love that image. But he also says later in the same chapter, if you disobey my commandments and do not keep the covenant that we've agreed upon, then the Lord will send send curses on you, confusion and frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil, evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. The idea is if we break God's commands, there's going to be a whole lot of bad news. And that's how we got to a point where Solomon was building a temple to now where Babylon is coming against the nation of Judah. And they make this covenant in Deuteronomy 28. And the disobedience of the Israelites happens almost instantaneously. They're told to go in to Canaan. They're told to destroy everything they come, uh, they come up against. And they're told to uh, force all the people that are living there out of the country. And almost immediately... Right when they take Jericho, they fail, and they don't. They keep things to themselves. They allow people that are staying there to stay there and live. And for centuries afterwards, it causes Israelites political and spiritual turmoil. Despite the fact that God said, if you disobey me, you'll be defeated by your enemies, and you'll be punished. For centuries, even though he said that, for centuries, though, God still exercises restraint and mercy 
and forgiveness to the Israelites time and time and time again, offering them yet another chance to make good on the covenant. He uses judges and prophets to attempt to call Israel to repentance. And even when Israel comes before God and says, give us a king so we can be just like everybody else. God knows it's the worst idea ever, but in his mercy, for some reason, he relents. How many times as a parent has your son or daughter come to you and says, can I have this one thing so I can be just like everybody else? Have you ever given in to that kind of argument? Probably not. Kids, if you're really wanting something from your parents, never, ever use the so I can be just like everybody else argument. Worst idea ever, all right? And yet, that's exactly what Israelites do with God, and he relents. And last summer, we did a series looking at this idea on the kings, and how bad of an idea it was. We called the sermon, we called the sermon series, Give Us a King and Other Bad Ideas. Because God gives them kings, and short of a handful, they're all disasters. It's a bad idea, and yet it happened. How many of you have ever had a bad idea, and you knew it was bad, and you still went ahead with it? Almost every guy in the room has probably got to raise his hand, right? Come on now. All right. Yeah, I'll, I'll admit, I've had a fair share of my bad ideas. So I, I will say, never, almost never in, the capa- in my professional capacity as a youth pastor, right? You know, I'm a little smarter than that. I, I reserve all my bad ideas for the company of my family, you know, lucky them. But one time when we were living in Los Angeles, more than a little while ago, we had some friends who had parents who lived in a rather posh part of Los Angeles, right? Really, really nice neighborhood. Everyone, a lot of people in Los Angeles have pools. They had a pool. We were invited over for a barbecue. It was one of these really, really nice indoor-outdoor pools. Like, it was both at the same time. And it wasn't just, it, it was like really nice pool to look at, you know? Uh, all polished concrete, every ornamental stone for all the edging and the coping around the pool. It was really nice. And we decided, hey, let's use the pool before dinner because you can't go swimming after dinner because what could be worse than throwing up in somebody else's pool, right? Well, I think I found what could be worse than doing that. I see this pool, and it's so nice. I'm like, oh, you can't just jump in a pool like this. A pool like this deserves a grand entrance, doesn't it? So my wife and Emma and my, one of my daughters, they're off. There's some other people in another corner of the pool. And, you know, I don't think my wife and daughter were paying any attention to me yet. But my wife probably said something like, don't do anything stupid. You know, cause, and I chose to ignore her, of course. And so I decided, hey, the backflip is an awesome way. You know, let, let's do the backflip. And I'm not quite sure what I was thinking. I stood on the edge of the pool. And, you know, rather than tell you about it, how about I'm just going to reenact it. All right? <laughs> Now, that would be a bad idea, wouldn't it? No. We'll just keep to retelling the story about the bad idea. So I stand on the edge of the pool, and I'm like thinking I'm Greg Louganis or something like this, and I'm all on my tippy toes, and I'm all doing this jazz, and I'm focusing. And I swear, I'm no gymnast. But if there's a perfect 10 back, yeah, you know, if there's a perfect 10 backflip, this is nearly it. Like, I went straight up and down. Like, it was a thing of beauty. Only problem is, is when you're backflipping into a pool, you got to make sure you go into the pool, right? So my feet land about six inches back where they started. 
and I'm just slightly bent over. So it's not a 10, it's probably a 9-7, right? My feet go in the pool. Head, boom, contact. Right on the edge of the pool. On that beautiful, like, like, edge of the pool that has all ornamental stone and everything, so it's not even smooth. Oddly enough, I go into the water, my very first thought is, no one saw, no one saw, no one saw. (laughs) They may have not saw, but as I jump out of the water, they surely see all the blood gushing down my head. Someone throws the nearest towel on my head, which, of course, is white, right? And my wife rushes me to the ER looking like Lawrence of Arabia with a head wound. As we're driving there, I'm just like, I don't want stitches. I can't believe that's the only thing I was thinking. I don't want stitches. Well, I didn't get stitches. Twelve staples. They put staples in your head. So we go back, and we had to go back to this barbecue, not because we wanted to, but because we left some things behind. And when we got back, it turns out I left something behind as well. A piece of my scalp the size of a silver dollar stuck to the side of the pool. So, all that to say, and I will say pool parties at the Thompsons and other people's here, I've never had a problem in 10, 12 years since, all right, so don't be afraid. All that to say is bad ideas are generally bad ideas, aren't they? They are. Israel wanted a king, and it was a bad idea, and they were warned. And we can see from this timeline here just how bad of an idea it was. You see the kings of Judah on the, left, on the left side, the kings of Israel on the right side. Look how many kings they had. We even have a handy scorecard. Not a single king from Israel met, made the grade in terms of being a good king. They're all in black. And only four from Judah in their entire history were kings that were deemed as ones who followed God and followed his commands. Four out of, I don't even want to count, four. Talk about a bad idea. And yet God relented. They didn't just disobey God's command, though. They worshipped other idols. They didn't just turn their back on him. They turned towards other gods. Disobeying God's commands was a bad idea, and they were warned, repeatedly not heeding warnings from the judges and the prophets that God sent was a bad idea. And yet they were warned more. They were warned when one kingdom was split into two kingdoms, just after Solomon. You'll see there... Ten, kingdom, ten um, tribes on the north formed Israel, and Judah formed a separate nation. Even when their country was split into two different countries, that was a warning that they chose to ignore. Israel was warned before they were taken into exile and ignored it. Israel exile to Assyria was a warning to Judah, and Judah ignored it. Judah was warned, and yet they didn't listen. Bad ideas are, a sick, are like a sickness, and where the sickness grows, bad things can happen. I've got a video clip to show you now. He took it as a sign, a sign that his right to rule was divine. All would pay homage to him, even the great elven king, Thranduil. But the years of peace and plenty were not to last. Slowly the days turned sour, and the watchful nights closed in. Thor's love of gold had grown too fierce. A sick
sickness had begun to grow within him. It was a sickness of the mind. And where sickness thrives, bad things will follow. Where sickness thrives, bad things will follow. And when our love of, other thing, of things other than God become too fierce, darkness and sickness close in. Let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 25 and read, read our scripture for this morning. We're going to jump around a little bit in, in this chapter. We're going to read verses 1 through 7, then 18 to 21, and then 27 to 30. Second Kings 25 verse 1 through 7 to start. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of this month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it, so the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe that the city, in the city that there was no food for the people in the, of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, And all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls. By the king's garden, though though the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. And now verse 18. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest and Zephaniah, the second priest and the three keepers of the threshold. From the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war and five men of the king's council who were found in the city. And the secretary, the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into, into exile out of its land. Verse 27. And in the 37th year of exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month of the 27th day of the month, Evil Mordech, king of Babylon, in the, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. For his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. This morning through this text, we're going to explore the idea that no one is immune to God's judgment. Don't think that I or you or we are immune. We don't have the luxury of thinking what we read here can't happen to us. We look at this big idea. We're going to look at this big idea this morning by discovering that God's warnings are his mercy. God's correction is his mercy. And through the cross, we can see that God's judgment is real. So let's start with God's warning is God's mercy. Kids, have have your parents ever told you that you shouldn't do something and it made you want to do it even more? Have they ever told you, don't don't touch those cookies or eat a cookie? 
until I tell you you're allowed to, or don't touch that pan, it's still hot, or don't climb that tree, it's dangerous, you're going to fall out of the tree. And does it make you want to do it more? Don't you want that cookie even more? Don't you want to look at, touch that pan and just see how hot it is? What is it that makes us think that we're immune to warnings? That we, don't, that we don't think we need to be warned. Because while others may get hurt doing that, I won't. And the sin, in the, sin that we read about in the Bible in many ways is like looking at a warning sign and thinking the opposite. It's like this warning sign. How many of you have ever seen a warning sign like that on an electrical box in your neighborhood? Have you ever wondered why signs like this are on these electrical boxes? Like, did, really, did someone really go up to this electrical box before the warning sign and say, hmm, it looks like it could be dangerous, and while I'm not an electrician, how bad can it be? Really? Are, are these warning signs there because someone didn't realize better and paid the consequences? How bad can, we, can it be sometimes is what we think when we see a warning sign. We read about it and think, not me, that can't happen to me, just like the Israelites, and all of a sudden, we get shocked. We see these warning signs, and as we're tempted, we just remove the warning signs. We don't just ignore them, we start to acknowledge that they don't even exist. But these warning signs are a gift to us, aren't they? They keep our kids safe. There are legitimate times when we know things aren't good for us, but we aren't certain just how bad they are for us. And that God gives us warning signs that we see them in Scripture is a blessing to us. Because warning signs aren't just warnings about what, might, what bad might happen to us. They're also there to direct us towards a life that is better for us. God warned Judah repeatedly through the prophets and the defeat of Israel. In 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15, 2 Chronicles is a bit of a parallel book to what we read in Kings. In 2 Chronicles 36, 15, we read, The Lord, the God of the fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. God over and over and over said prophets and judges as a warning to the people of Israel and Judah because he had compassion on them. You know, the alarm in our cars for the seatbelt is is kind of a, a similar example, isn't it? That dinging noise that when you get in when you're not putting on your seatbelt is what they call negative reinforcement. They make that noise annoying so that you'll put on the seatbelt. Yeah. And many times that alarm is a blessing even when it's annoying because you know how it is. We're getting in the car. You're getting the kids in. You're getting stuff organized. You've got to plug in your phone. You've got to change the, uh, the change, get your iTunes going or whatever song you're listening to. And the seatbelt is almost the last thing that we think of. And it's that alarm that reminds us of what we need to do. That alarm is a blessing. The warnings that God gave to Judah and gives to us are the same. They're God showing us his mercy. He's direct, he in his infinite wisdom is directing us away from what he knows is bad for us and pointing us towards something he knows is better for us. 
He's directing us through warnings to the life that he longs to give us. And we can read scripture, all through scripture, God warns us. The story of the Israelites and the fall of Judah is a historical warning to us about wandering from God's commands and choosing our own way. God also warns us through community. Sometimes people come into our lives and warn us about behavior and choices that we're making, and it hurts to hear that, but Scripture is full of references about how we ought to warn each other in the context of loving communal relationships. And those warnings are an act of mercy. They're an act of God's mercy. And so in regards to warnings, we have to ask ourselves, am I listening? Do I have ears to hear? And if I've heard, do I have the desire and then the will to turn back? When we see a danger sign that clearly spells out the damage of a potential choice that we might, might make, the wise decision is to turn back, to reverse course, to choose otherwise. But it's not always the easiest decision, is it? Because turning back is his admission that where we were headed is not the right direction and it's not a good path for us. It's an admission that we didn't know best and somebody else did. And it's this turning back and this admission and a willingness to change course that is what repentance is all about. And our God is a God that welcomes us back into our arms when we accept his mercy, and his grace by heeding his warnings. And if you're not listening, what then? What if you can't or you won't hear God's warnings anymore? Parents, have you ever had a moment with one of your kids where you've repeatedly warned them over and over and over and they won't listen and you finally get to a point where you say, fine, I'm going to let you learn from your consequences from your bad choice. I think dads probably slip into that mode more than moms do. And hopefully as a parent, you haven't had to go into that mode too often. But sometimes we start to feel like that's the only way our kids will learn. God's warnings of mercy for us are like that. But with much more, um, but with much more significant consequences. Parents, we know we'd only ever learn, let our kids learn from their consequences when we know it's something that is probably a little bit more mild, where the, where the consequences and the potential damage are not so significant that it's going to really hurt who they are. And with sin, God's warnings of mercy are trying to move us away from things that have life-threatening consequences, things that threaten our life, our community, our relationship, our faith, and our dependence on him. Doctors will tell you it's, it's not the smoker who doesn't know that smoking is bad for them that is the most dire case. Doctors will tell you it's the smoker who knows that smoking is bad for them and doesn't care that is the most dire case. Are we listening to God's warning of mercy? 2 Chronicles 36.15 continues by saying, the Lord, the God of the Father, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets. What happens when warnings aren't enough? 
Now, I've already kind of alluded to it in terms of how as parents we let our children sometimes experience the consequences of their actions. But then we follow up with discipline and correction so that we can make sure that they'll never hopefully make the same mistake again. When we don't listen to God's warnings, God extends another level of mercy to us by correcting us. God's correction is also his mercy. About 10 years ago, Heather and I lived in in a small town in Wisconsin. And in the summer, it was a tourist town because it was on a beautiful lake that was in between Chicago and in Milwaukee. And lots of people with lots of money would come and live there all summer. And and because it was a small town and there's only two highways in and out of it, and see, I'm, I'm already making excuses, but one year I got three speeding tickets in one year. I, I'm not going to make excuses for what happened, but in, in Wisconsin, you don't just get the speeding tickets, you get points against your license, which then affect your uh, insurance rating, and insurance goes up, and if you get too many points, you get your license suspended, and depending on how fast you're speeding depends on how many points uh, you get added. And so at some point, I decided taking a points reduction class at the local community college would be a good idea, which is really kind of weird that they call it a points reduction class because you're supposed to take it to learn how to become a better driver, right? But everyone takes it just to reduce the points, to reduce the consequences of bad decisions rather than learning new behavior. So I took the class, and you know I'll admit I took it to reduce points, to reduce the consequences, but I will admit it very quickly changed how I drove from that day on. Because I walk in the room, and I was a little bit surprised to see how many people there were in this room taking this class. I walk in, and the one chair that's left there, I sit down next to a kid who is in the youth group that I was running. He's 17. You know, I was 28 or something at the point. I don't know. I've been pretty embarrassed in my life. But that, that time ranks way up there. I sit down, I'm like, he's like, hey, Chris. Oh, cool, someone I know in here. I'm like, oh, my gosh. It was the most embarrassing thing ever. And instantly I thought, I have got to do better than this. This is not who I am and how I'm supposed to drive, how I'm supposed to live. And I do drive more safely now, and I'll be honest, I still have my driving issues. If you're in the left-hand lane and driving 10 miles below the speed limit, there's two other lanes that way. Please use them. But speeding, for the most part, is not an issue. That class and, and the speeding tickets I got, I can look back on it now, they were acts of mercy for me. Speeding tickets are horrible, aren't they? They cost an arm and a leg. And why is it the police seem to take great joy in taking time writing a ticket when you've just been caught speeding because you're late for an appointment? You know, I'm not quite sure it's part of the punishment, I guess. And the damage is worse than just the money you have to pay. It's the points against your license and, you know, just the emotional turmoil, how it affects your attitude. But what is worse? Driving in that way and speeding or... Driving in a way that could get me or you or someone else on the road killed. We always say that would never happen to me. But scripture is full of stories of people who said that will never happen to me. 
Every time Judah had a disobedient king, they thought, ah, it can't happen to us. And it did. Speeding tickets ultimately worked as correction in my life. They were an act of mercy. When warnings aren't good enough anymore because we don't listen, God shows us his mercy by correcting us. He wants our behavior to change. And the correction can take on many faces. In the Second Chronicles uh, passage I read, it said that God sent messengers to Judah. Those messengers were a form of correction. When God sends others beyond themselves, those are forms of correction. But the correction in Judah's case was ultimately being exiled to Babylon. And as parents, we know this well. We're hard on our kids and we discipline because we love them. Kids, I'm sure you've heard it before when your parents are disciplining you. They say something like this. They say something like, I'm doing this because I love you. And they're not just saying that because they're feeling guilty. It's because they really do love you. It's hard to believe this is true, but God disciplines us because he loves us. Because he wants to limit how much we hurt ourselves. God disciplines us directly by providing the correction himself. And other times he simply allows us to feel the consequences of our poor choices. And before you get angry and say, you know, what kind of God would do that? I thought God was supposed to be good. We need to remember that God isn't acting out of malice against us. He acts out of love. We call him father and father's parent out of love. When God corrects us and disciplines us, he isn't trying to destroy us. He's trying to restore us. God wasn't trying to destroy Judah through, ex- through exile to Babylon. He was trying to restore them. And, and I don't have this passage of scripture on a slide, but I want to share it with you from Jeremiah 24, 4-7. through And Jeremiah was the prophet at the time, uh, one of the prophets at the time in Judah, uh, bringing uh, prophetic words and correction to the people of Judah to try and get them to turn. And Jeremiah says in verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with a whole heart. God was not trying to destroy Judah. He was trying to restore them. Just as through God's correction for us in our lives, he's not trying to destroy us. He's trying to restore us. And so when we are being corrected, I need to ask myself, who am I going to blame? Who do I think is really to blame? Why is it that when when we suddenly feel the consequences of our decisions we lash out at others for what we know is our fault. When I get the speeding ticket, why is it that when the police comes to my, my car door and asks for my license, I, I want to say something like, don't you have like crime to fight or something? But it was my foot on the speeding limit, on the, on this, on, on the gas pedal. It was my eyes that chose to ignore the sign that clearly told me 
how to follow the law, the commands that I was given if I want to drive on the road and drive safely. It was my fault. Nobody else's fault. I have to take blame. And then I have to ask myself, which is worth the speeding ticket is no fun. But is it nearly as bad as the consequences of potentially taking a life through my bad driving? Was exile for 70 years in Babylon even close to as bad as the consequences of, of eternal separation from God for Judah? No. The correction is never as bad as what the consequences could be. We're just angry we got caught. C.S. Lewis describes our response to correction and discipline by God well in his book, The Problem with Pain. And it's a long quote, but I think it's worth it. He wrote, We're not metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art, something that God is making, and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied with until he has a certain character. Here again, we come up against what I've called the intolerable compliment. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go, and even, though it's, even though it's not exactly what he meant it to be. But over the great picture of his life, the work he loves, though in a different fashion, as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother or a child, he will take endless trouble, and would doubtless therefore give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentiment. One can imagine a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious and less arduous identity, but then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. How will we respond to God's correction and His mercy? We should submit. We shouldn't run away like some of the Israelites did in running back to Egypt to escape God's correction. We shouldn't fight back like Zedekiah and who rebelled against the Babylons. We should submit. And we have to humble ourselves. We must come before God and our Father and say, You know best. You love me. I need to learn from this. And we have to learn from it because God's judgment is real. We know from the Bible that one day Jesus will return and when he does, everyone will be judged. Because God is holy and he is righteous, his character requires justice. We desire justice, don't we? When we see something wrong, we want it to be made right. God's judgment is real. And we see that in 2 Kings 25. Zedekiah rebels against Babylon They siege Jerusalem for two years and he tries to run away. He's caught. He never cries out to God for help. His sons are killed in front of him. They take his sight away and they take him in chains to uh, to Babylon in exile never to be heard from again. God's judgment is real. But at the end of 2 Kings, a really curious thing happens. Judah is exiled to Babylon and Jehoiakim, who was a scoundrel when he was king, and a rebel against God, someone who deserved his exile, all of a sudden he's graciously freed. And in verse 
um, in chapter 25, 27 to 30, it says, and in the 20th, in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, a king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Mordecai, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison, spoke kindly to him, and gave him a seat above the king of, uh, seats of the kings who were with him in battle, Babylon. So Jehoiakim put on to put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance was given a regular allowance by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. He wasn't just freed. He was restored. Jehoiakim Jehoiachin was given a place among the kings. He was given new clothes, and he was invited to feast at the king's table. Sounds like a banquet we read about in the New Testament. This is a sign of hope for the people of Judah and to us. Jehoiachin was a descendant of David, and from David comes the line of Christ. A king survives because ultimately a king would make the ultimate sacrifice and pay for our sins. God's judgment is real, and the verdict has been delivered. We're sinful. We're deserving of not just the correction, correction and not just the discipline, but ultimately we are deserving of the judgment, of God's judgment, because of how our lives show that we just don't learn. And yet, he extends his mercy even further. In, in a way that despite its familiarity, we should still find every day surprising. We know God's judgment is real because of the cross and the power of the cross. The cross was the ultimate form of exile. It was the ultimate form of separation from God. God's holiness demanded justice. It demanded that a judgment be rendered. And the judgment is we are guilty. No one is immune to God's judgment. We're deserving of it all. And yet in God's great mercy and unending love, he receives payment from Jesus. Jesus is the receiver of our judgment. Jesus willingly chose to become like me. And yet lives a sinless life. But then takes what is mine and submits to his father. He takes on our sin. And as a result, the price has been paid. Our price has been paid. We have been ransomed by a pure and innocent lamb by the name of Jesus. And now that our price has been paid, how now will we live? How will we live? We must trust we must trust even when it hurts, even when it's hard, even when being, war- being warned and it's humiliating. We must trust even when we're being corrected and it hurts. We must trust that it's God's mercy at work even when it's hard to recognize. How can we trust when we so want to choose our own way? Just as Jesus trusted in his Father's way when he prayed, take this cup from me, please, Father, Isn't there another way? Jesus prayed. He prayed, not my will, but your will. Jesus also regularly removed himself, sought silence 
and solitude so he can more clearly hear the voice of God, of his Father. Jesus practiced what we call the spiritual disciplines. These disciplines, like warnings and corrections, are, are gifts from God, gifts of mercy that allow us to come closer to our Father as he strives to come closer to us. And they're a pathway to a life of trust. Last week, if you are here, we heard that God will do anything to come near us, even warn and correct us. He does these things so that we will draw near to him rather than separating ourselves from him through sin. How will we live? We'll trust. And when we trust, our lives become a picture of humble submission, of gratitude and thanks, of peace, trusting that God has our best interests in mind, And that he constantly extends his mercy when it's not deserved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a just God. We thank you that you want to right wrongs. Lord, we are so thankful for your mercy, for your grace. Lord, even when it's hard to swallow sometimes, and it comes in the form of warnings and corrections. But Lord, help us to trust that they are coming because you long for us to, to have the life that you have designed for us to have. Give us the strength to humble ourselves before you and before others, to submit to your warnings, to submit to your corrections, so that we can live in your mercy, in your grace, and in your peace. We pray all this in your name. Amen.